0: I wonder, how good are you at receiving criticism? Helpful criticism. (laughs) We all know, theoretically, that we're not perfect, that we are a work in progress, that God expects us to keep growing. But as soon as someone is brave enough to correct us, most of us react in one of these three ways. We go quiet. We sulk. Our pride's been hurt. We refuse to talk about it. Perhaps, if we're honest, there's a little passive aggression there. Uh, We want to hurt because we've been hurt. Uh, Two, we defend ourselves. We activate our inner lawyer. We line up the arguments and excuses justifying why the accusation was unfair and why our behaviour was not as bad as that person thought and why that person's observation was not accurate. Or, three... We go on the attack. We point the finger right back at the person who's corrected us. They have no right to accuse us. They're at least as bad as we are. It's tough, isn't it, to receive helpful criticism? We want to be liked. We want to be thought of as competent. Our pride's been wounded. Our feelings have been hurt. We feel discouraged. Wouldn't it be great instead if we had a positive attitude towards criticism? If we had the attitude of, say, Proverbs 27 5 and 6, that says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Uh, Or Psalm 141. Uh, verse 5 that says Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil on my head. My head will not refuse it. Now that's the attitude we should have to correction, isn't it? To receive it humbly with gratitude because God wants us to be growing. Uh, He wants us to be shaped by one another. And not just in the receiving of helpful criticism, In the giving of it. God wants us to be showing that same sort of tough love to one another. The love of a trusted friend. The love that's willing to risk a friendship. Uh, Galatians 6 verse 1, God commands us. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. I think not by the same sin, I think it's tempted by pride. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfil the law of Christ, which is to love one another. Carrying the burden by sharing a criticism is showing love. In Luke 17, Jesus says, So watch yourselves. If your brother sins rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. God's will for you is correction, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation and growth in godliness. God wants to see these things in our relationships with one another but we're not very good at it. How can we be better at giving and receiving helpful criticism? Well, Paul and the Corinthians give us a good example to follow here in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul, on the one hand, shows the tough love that risks the relationship. And on the other hand, the Corinthians show the humility and the sorrow that produce salvation and a growth in godliness. Now the issue is the tough letter that Paul wrote previously. We don't have a copy of it. Back in chapter 2 he talked about it and he described how he wrote it to correct the way the church had failed to discipline one of its sinning members. Which is sort of ironic. (laughs) And he'd written the letter with tears in his eyes because he didn't want to hurt them. And he knew the letter would hurt them. He wanted to help them. Uh, He knew there was a good chance they wouldn't take it well. uh, And he was scared that he would lose his relationship with them. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 4, he says, For I wrote you, out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. It's like every parent who has to show tough love to a child. Every parent who insists that their child does swimming lessons or takes them for their vaccinations. It's for their good, even though it hurts. I remember when Lachlan was about two, uh, he fell off the top of a slippery slide. Truth be told, his sister pushed him, uh, and he cut open the corner of his mouth. Uh, It needed to be stitched. Uh, We took him to the doctor. Now, it's pretty difficult for a two-year-old to understand that they've hurt themselves. But try explaining that he also needs a painkilling injection into his mouth. And then he needs to have his face stitched up while he sees the needle coming closer. Now he was hysterical. We had to wrap him in a blanket to keep him still and it took Karen and myself, two grown adults, to hold him down while the doctor stitched. But it needed to be done for Lachlan's good. A needle and stitches that hurt for a few minutes to avoid an injury that may take much longer to heal properly. It was short-term pain for long-term gain. Now that's Paul writing this letter. This is tough love. This is short-term pain for long-term gain. And so now in chapter 7, he brings up the letter again in the context of showing how much he loves them, how much they are in his heart, and he wants what's best for them. Chapter 6, the false teachers want to cut off all contact from Paul. They think the tough letter is evidence he doesn't love them. But in verse 2, Paul pleads with them, make room for us in your hearts. Make room for us in your hearts. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've exploited no one. Whatever the opponents are saying about us, we love you so much, verse 3, we would die for you. To prove his love, he describes how he felt about the letter he sent. Uh, He'd sent it from somewhere in Asia uh, and then he'd send Titus uh, to find out how the Corinthians had responded to the letter, whether it had produced repentance. Uh, He'd waited for Titus in Troas, but Titus didn't arrive. Uh, You can see Troas there, circled in yellow. Uh, Corinthians is sort of over here on the right-hand side, Corinth. Uh, He'd waited for Titus in Troas, but Titus didn't meet him in Troas. And so Paul was anxious to hear the news. And so he decided to cross the Aegean Sea uh, and look for him in Macedonia, which is at the top on the right. Uh, We read about that, chapter 2, verse 13. Uh, And so now in verse 5 of chapter 7, he resumes this story about him travelling from place to place. When we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest, for we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. Not just the usual difficult external things, the opposition to the gospel he faced everywhere, he was worried about how his letter would be received, fears within. Paul had real distress. He regretted sending the letter. Not that he regretted the contents, but rather he regretted the effect that uh, the contents would have. Uh, So, verse 8, he says, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Uh, I wonder if you've ever done that. Uh, We don't tend to post too many letters these days, but I wonder if you've ever regretted sending that email. Like you just hit sand and straight away, oh, how do I get that back? Uh, I heard about a lady organising Christmas gifts for her nieces and nephews. It had been a busy year. Instead of buying presents, she'd organised cheques for all of the nieces and nephews and cards with the inscription, too busy to buy presents this year, buy something yourself with the cheque. She posted off the cards. She thought nothing about it until she failed to receive any of the usual thank you letters. And her family gave her a cold reception when they got together. It wasn't until a few months later that she worked out what had happened. She found the cheques in the top drawer unposted. Uh, She'd sent the cards, which had the message, too busy to buy presents for you this year, buy something yourself. (laughs) It has a very different meaning when there's no check accompanying it, doesn't it? I bet she wished she could bring those letters back. Now that's the sort of impact Paul dreads with his letter. A letter that could ruin the relationship. But it's only a measure of his love. He loves so much. He's willing to risk that relationship to restore them. Now that's love, isn't it? Is that something you're prepared to do? To risk your friendship with someone because you care enough to correct? A Christian friend of mine told me about something that had happened to her a number of years previous. Uh, She was going out with a non-Christian. And one of her best friends, who was a Christian, said to her, It's wrong for you to keep going out with this guy. You are disobeying God and I don't think I can be your friend while you keep this relationship. Now, we might wonder whether that's the wise thing to say or not, but it was certainly brave. And it was something that came out of her love for her friend. Well, my friend was furious, and she didn't speak to this girl for 18 months. But it did turn out all right in the end. She broke up with the boy, and she made up with her friend. Now that was tough love, that turned out well. What sort of tough love are you willing to show for others? So Paul, he was scared of losing the friendship of the Corinthians, but he needn't have worried. Verse 6, Titus arrived. And Titus brought good news, and Titus brought real comfort. Verse 6, but God who comforts the downcast, that's Paul, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. What a turning point. He'd worried that the relationship was over. But the good news was that it was even stronger. Which is often the way, isn't it? Uh, When there's a breakdown in relationships or when there's something, there's a barrier and, and that barrier is actually broken down and, and there's genuine uh, forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness, the relationship becomes stronger, doesn't it? Real distress has turned to real comfort because the letter produced real sorrow. Uh, Do you see there in verse 9? Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, uh, but because your sorrow led you to repentance for you became sorrowful as God intended and so were not harmed in any way by us godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret but worldly sorrow brings death you see there's nothing wrong with sorrow we almost think in the west these days that to be sad you know there's something terrible in the world we almost think it's a basic human right to be happy all the time. We shouldn't be afraid of sorrow as long as it's godly sorrow. Now, the phrase in Greek is, it, "It's sorrow according to God, sorrow belonging to God, or, or corresponding to God." Now that's interesting, isn't it? You were sorrowful according to God, as God intended. Now, some people will tell you that God's will for your life as a Christian is that you be happy, healthy, and wealthy. But this verse is saying that God's will for you is that you grieve. But it's got to be grief that leads you to repentance, it's got to be sorrow at your own sin that in humility drives you to God for forgiveness and restoration and life and growth. Now that is God's will for you, that sort of sorrow. Jesus said these words at the start of the Sermon on the Mountain. They've been interpreted in all sorts of ways, but I think they fit really well to this context of sorrow that leads you to repentance and a growth in godliness. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Jesus is saying that sorrow that leads you to repentance is blessing because it leads to righteousness. That's God's will for you. And so Paul doesn't regret that his letter produced that sort of sorrow. But there is another sort of sorrow that he mentions. Do you see it there in verse 10? Worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow brings death. I think the difference is that worldly sorrow begins with pride rather than humility. Worldly sorrow wallows in self-pity. Poor old me. Uh, but I have got excuses for it. Worldly sorrow never moves beyond self-pity. There's no genuine repentance, and so it ends in death rather than life. Worldly sorrow is the alcoholic whose marriage has broken up, the kids won't talk to him, his wife lives in another city, he's in despair, but he refuses to expect any responsibility. He refuses to change his behaviour, to repent, and it leads to death. Worldly sorrow versus godly sorrow. I think we've got case studies in Judas Iscariot and Peter the Apostle around Jesus' death. Worldly sorrow is Judas Iscariot. He betrayed Jesus. He recognised he'd sinned, that he'd betrayed innocent blood, and he was more he he was sad. He was overcome with sorrow. In a sense, he tried to fix the situation. But not before God, he he, he went back to the Jews who'd paid him and he threw the money into the temple. But then he went out and hung himself. That's worldly sorrow. Now, even as Christians, we often fall into worldly sorrow, let me suggest. A courageous brother or sister points out an area of sin in our life. Perhaps somewhere where our priorities are upside down, or where we've had an unhelpful attitude or response or words towards someone, maybe an inappropriate relationship, and we react. We react with pride rather than humility. And we respond with self-righteousness or excuses. But you don't know the full story. But you've misunderstood. But you don't realise what I'm going through. How dare you tell me what to do? I suppose you're perfect, are you? Now responses like that uh, come from pride and that's worldly sorrow and it leads to death. If we continue down that path, uh, it leads to death. Everyone who is uh, who refuses to recognize their sin like that is headed down that path. Now that's worldly sorrow. Instead, we need to respond the way the Corinthians did. Uh, Do you look at the result of their godly sorrow, verse 11? And I reckon Paul would have written these verses with a huge grin on his face. He'd written his other letter with tears streaming down onto the parchment. But here he's just got a smile from ear to ear. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness or, or diligence? What eagerness to clear yourselves? What indignation, what alarm or fear, it translates the fear word. What fear, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Paul's letter was like an arrow to their heart, it was like a mirror, it was like a searchlight. They received it as a messenger from God himself. They recognised the truth of it and they earnestly and eagerly worked to fix things up. Uh, They were indignant that they'd got things wrong. They were eager to set things right. They felt a right fear of God's holiness and justice. They had a longing to restore broken relationships and to set things right, even if they'd been to blame. Whatever it was, they they were fixing things up. Now, that's godly sorrow, and Paul is overjoyed. What about you? How quick are you to fix things up? Uh, To apologise, if it's a one-to-one relational matter. To repent. How good are you at saying sorry? Are you the first to apologise after a disagreement, or the last? Are your words, I'm sorry I hurt you, please forgive me. Or are your words, "Well, I'm sorry you felt upset. Godly Godly sorrow receives this sort of tough love, this correction well with humility, produces repentance and salvation. Now what about us as a community? There are wider implications than just one-to-one, or you and God. The way you receive criticism has a positive effect on those around you. As people see your humility, as people see you recognising your mistakes and owning them, recognising that you're not perfect, but that you're hungry to grow, as people see that, they're more likely to admit their own failings. Pretending that you're perfect doesn't encourage anyone else to perfection, but just discourages them that they can't keep up with you because they know they're real heart. Let's make our church, let's make our small groups, let's make our conversations places where these sorts of relationships are encouraged and fostered, where humility and honesty and openness are obvious, where accountability and responsibility and concern for each other actually mean something. Where these are more than just words, but an accurate description of the way we relate to each other. So that our concern, our love, our correction for each other might lead us all to godly sorrow, repentance, godliness and life. Let's pray, let's work at being blessed the way Jesus said, as we mourn our sin, as we're humbled, as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Amen. Uh, Merrick is going to come and continue leading us in prayer.